You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko from Cote St. Luke, Montreal, Beth Israel, Beth Aaron. Rabbi Pupko, I'm from Kipolevich, in case you didn't know that. I'm still the same person in some ways that you remember from all way back when and i know our memories are uh are pretty grainy and a lot of what we like to do uh rabbi is to sort of invent the past the way we'd like it to be um and i, I that theme about memory and zikaron of course uh is very prominent uh this evening and in going into tomorrow as we have uh the celebration worldwide and maybe the commemoration is a better way of saying it, of Yom HaShoah. Uh, and we are, of course, missing every single year more and more people uh, who could actually give us the Zikaron from their own lives. Um, and I think that there has been some, uh, not not just from uh, the religious uh, chevra, uh, the, the yeshiva velt that says Yom HaShoah is more uh, appropriate to be put into terms of all Yiddish Tzaras, like on Tisha B'Av or other things like that. But even in terms of people who at one time perhaps would have championed this, have said that today the uh, the specific ethnicity of the day, uh, it's, it's, it's unique connection to the Jewish people suffering, um, is something that needs to be altered, especially as the most powerful um, representatives of Yom HaShoah have been the survivors, and of course they are um, and are not around. And even the ones that are capable of perhaps speaking, I guess we have to question, although we have to respect what they've been through in terms of giving us the knowledge and understanding of what actually occurred, their memories, I think, need to be examined as, as all of ours does, and especially in their case, as something that could be, perhaps be faulty or completely off, off uh, uh, you know, off. You are obviously a, a your show, I'm sure, and contribute contributes uh, towards this the the significance of the day. Uh, what do you think? Has Yoma Showa lost really what it was meant to do, considering how far removed we are and how difficult it is to really grasp this thing in the end? I, there's a lot of in, in what you said, and a lot of different topics are uh, are are. are Touched upon when you talk about Yom Hashoah and, and and the place of the role it plays in Jewish life and the role it should play, the role it does play, the role it can continue to play. From the very beginning, it goes back to the 1950s. In the, in the beginning, of the, in the years after the war, um, there was already the tension between how do you understand the lesson of the Holocaust and therefore how to frame the memory of the Holocaust. So there were those from the very beginning and, and I don't want to impugn their motivation I can impugn their, their philosophy who, who from the very beginning believed that if the Holocaust was specifically Jewish which I know sounds completely ridiculous to most people who are listening if the Holocaust was overly Jewish, 
it wouldn't be forgotten. And therefore, the way to ensure the memory um, would be to universalize the message of the Holocaust. And by universalize the message of the Holocaust, uh, meant a couple of things at the beginning. I'm talking now chronologically, not philosophically. What it meant, first of all, was there was a huge debate in the 19, I think it was the 50s or early 60s, about the first staging of the Anne Frank uh, story on Broadway. And there was a huge debate at the time, very well recorded, about how the text of her diary was de-Judaized. And there were those who protested vigorously. The story was written up in an old, old edition of Commentary Magazine. Uh, Meyer Levin was involved with great, you know, wonderful figures and well-meaning people in this debate. I think one of the most fascinating parts of the attempt to universalize the story was done by someone who's championed as a, as a hero, and legitimately so, was Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal invented a number. It was a complete invention. Because he, he was the one who began talking about how 11 million victims of the Holocaust six million of whom were Jewish. He invented that number. Now, I know that sounds startling to people, but uh, you know some people may have noticed I was distracted, I looked distracted when you were talking because I wanted to dig up the quote. And I, and I have the quote here. Yeah, unfortunately, we, you know, we, this is an audio podcast. You know, I know that there has been a, a tremendous movement to get both of our very stunning visages on the, on the, <laughs> but nobody, nobody saw anything. Nobody I, saw I, yeah, I, know, I noticed it, but you're always, you know, I, I, I always, <laughs> I always expect your mind to wander, but go ahead. So he, let me read you the story. Yehuda Bauer is Israeli Holocaust scholar. Yes, he's very famous. And he's very, actually, he he's, died in 2005. Yeah, I've he, read, warned, go ahead. he warned Simon Wiesenthal, who himself died in 2005, about spreading the false notion that the Holocaust claimed 11 million victims, 6 million Jews, and 5 million non-Jews. I'm, I'm sorry, when I mentioned died in 2005, I meant only Wiesenthal. I said to him, this is a quote from Bauer. I said to him, Simon, you're telling a lie. Bauer recalled in an interview. He said, this is Wiesenthal's response, sometimes you need to do that to get the results for things you think are essential. And what he thought was essential was universalizing the idea. Um, and, it had, and, it, and it has, and, it, and this number is quoted at, at thousands of Holocaust memorial gatherings across the U.S. Okay, so the lie is about the other five million, not about the six million, right? Of course not. The lie about the six million is probably more now that we know so much more about what happened in the lands of the former Soviet Union. That's right, Russia. Right. So it's probably more. We don't, because the archives just opened since the collapse of communism 30 years ago. But the, uh, the, uh, the it's an absolute lie, the 11 million. Absolute line you hear repeated over and over and over again. I just had to deal with the story uh, in New York as somebody I know very well who was involved in a Holocaust memorial there, who was fighting this battle with an organization that wanted to continue to promulgate that lie. But the idea was, and it's a two-track, it's a two-track uh, uh, situation. One track is the ascent. They believe the essential message of the Holocaust is a universal message, which I'll get to in a minute. And they also believe that in order for the world to embrace the memory of the Holocaust, you needed to expand sure. its understanding. Now, both those things are wrong. What I mean by that is, yes, there are two lessons of the Holocaust. There are two very important lessons. There's a Jewish lesson and a universal lesson. 
universal lesson is all hatred and bigotry needs to be rejected forcefully. That if we tolerate uh, hateful actions, it can lead to the most terrible crimes. And therefore, there can be absolutely no tolerance for bigotry or racism of any kind. That's the universal lesson of the Holocaust. I have no problem saying that. But there are many people who forget the Jewish lesson of the Holocaust. The Jewish lesson of the Holocaust is, at the end of the day, the only people in the world who can ever be trusted with the life of a Jew is another Jew. And we have to be in control of our own destiny. That is the Jewish lesson of the Holocaust is that we can never allow ourselves the obscenity of vulnerability. We can never allow, again, the obscenity of homelessness. That is a That leads to the worst calamities. When Jews do not control Jewish destiny, we are in a state of precariousness that cannot be tolerated, that leads to a Holocaust. So we have to know, so that's the Jewish lesson. And uh, that lesson has been learned by many Jews, not all, but by many Jews, and their support for the state of Israel, to ensure that Israel is strong, and everything else. And, to, and, and also, I mean, there were other lessons. I mean, there are other... Okay, well, let me push back a little bit there. I know, yeah, you, sure. you, I know you've got a huge suitcase full of stuff here on this. Okay. Um, but I'm just playing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, SS advocate here. I don't know what it would be called, devil's advocate. Um, because clearly, if that's true, then... That that means, and we've talked about this in this program. That means Israel. That means Canada and the U.S. or any other place which has given us safe democratic haven also needs to be uh, dismantled. And we need to realize that we're not in control here either, right? So um, listen, we, we uh, right? Yeah, that's what you said. You said listen, every, 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 we're not in. We every, don't run. Yeah. Every Jew, for some Jews, it's one part of their brain. For some Jews, it's ninety percent of their brain. They know living anywhere in exile and diaspora does entail a degree of vulnerability. We are willing to tolerate that degree of vulnerability based on two things, our perception of it and how profound it is. And number two, how much faith we have in the democratic architecture of our country. And uh, so far, you know, it's worked out pretty good in America and Canada with you know, some glaring exceptions. It has worked out pretty well for us. And... Um, uh, and uh, and that's where we uh, where, where we stand. But okay, so, th- so that neutralizes the message. If you're going to say no, it doesn't neutralize the message because there's no question that the very existence of a strong and secure Israel plays a role in the degree of vulnerability that a Jew in St. Louis feels. There's no question. In other words, knowing that there is a place okay. strengthens our sense of of, of, uh, of security anywhere, which has again been proven throughout the 70 years or so existence of the state of Israel, that the Jewish situation elsewhere is also made more secure. Because we have that option. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I always look at it, you know, in terms of, um, of I, I guess, the, you know, the social security option, which is, you know, we, we operate here. <laughs> we create enough funds uh, to be able to, to move, you know, in other words, the no, but also there's another thing when you and I were kids, the central address of the Jewish people was still America. That's true, they you said, no longer the case, okay. which is what I was getting at. Which I, I think that all of us, you know, I'm sure you know, and again, you are the uh, emeritus Rex, but <laughs> you know, part of you, I think, says, as much as I love you know, my villa in Cote St. Luke, 
you know, I'm probably going to spend the last my last years in, in Israel. Yeah. Probably, but but, but it's is that than, true? Do you want to say that here, or is that not true? I, I don't. I don't, I don't talk about my plans even myself. So. Okay, you're too. Per- it's too personal. <laughs> I think I I think that many of us have this Ramban. Uh, I know, but but it's, but it's more than that. Religiously, spiritually, politically, the stage of Jewish life, the stage of the Jewish drama, is not in Brooklyn or Beverly Hills. Right, it's not in you know uh, in, in in Boulder's Green, and it's not in, in in Sydney, Australia, and it's not on Bathurst Street in Toronto. This the stage of the Jewish drama, on every single level, whether you look at it as, a, as somebody who's secular, or you look at somebody who's religious, or, or, or from a political vantage point, the stage is the state of Israel. That's the reality. That means whether you think of who the Gedolim are, if you're a kid in yeshiva. You think of Israel. You don't think of Brooklyn. You don't. When we were kids, you thought of Ramayshin, and you know, and and and, and that and that reality. Uh, today, you don't think that way. No one thinks that way. Everyone thinks of Israel, and Israel is a central address of the Jewish people. It is, for the first time, not since Bayashid, for the first time since Bayashid Rishon. In a few years, the majority of Jews in the world are going to be living in Israel. Right now, the majority of Jewish children being born in the world are being okay. born in Israel. Right. That's, the, that's the reality. Okay. Let, let me ask another thing. We, we know that uh, you know, we t- before we started recording, you know, we talked about this sort of uh, convoluted way that the state of Israel uh, got whatever it was, Chavvav or right, Chav Zion this year, right? Of uh, some, uh, I know, I, I, you know I, I, I who had so many relatives perish in the Shoah should know exactly the date, but this reflects, but, but I'm saying the, the convoluted. Let me just get the point out. The convoluted way that 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 we came up with this, which of course was the state of Israel's shame at the victimhood of of of, of what they perceived was most of the mem- people who died in the Holocaust. Uh, ben Gurion and others, of course, resisted um, uh, mass, uh, uh, you know, the mass emigration of people from concentration camps because they thought these are all damaged goods. If we are going to celebrate the sh- or mem- commemorate the Shoah, we need to commemorate the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. We have to commemorate Chabotinsky. We have to commemorate the fact that we are fighters. It was, listen. It was, Go ahead. No, no. What you're saying is true, but it's, 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 it's not complete. The reality is that after World War II, People didn't know what had happened. Let's let's be blunt here. People didn't know, okay? And people assumed certain things. And people thought terribly wrong things. Talk to people who came after the war to anywhere, Israel or Montreal, wherever they went. Holocaust survivors were treated terribly. The assumption was, number one, I mean, you know, that they had gone like sheep to slaughter. That was the that was the lie about the Holocaust. Now, the reason, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, it just was a lot, a lot of things that need to be understood. It was a lie. Now, where did the lie come from? I'm really not sure. The original sentence, sheep to slaughter, was used by Abba Kovner in the Vilna Ghetto. He did not use that as a, an accusation. He used it as a rallying cry. Right before the uprising in Vilna, he said... Let us not go like sheep to slaughter. Right? It was used as a rallying cry. Again, to quote Yehuda Bauer, one of the leading Holocaust historians, 
and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the quote in front of me. He said, it is, uh, he said the following, and let me get it straight. Actually, I have the quote here. If you want me to get the quote, I'll get you the quote. Hold on, one following. He was describing how in the early years after the war, when he would teach about the Holocaust, this is what, it, what, what the question he would be confronted with. This is the major question, which is Yehuda Bauer talk. This is the major question arising in every discussion on the Shoah, in every unit of soldiers, every school class in university seminar. He was teaching this. It is distilled in the expression like, sleep to, like sheep to slaughter. The phrase is interesting in that it appears only among the Jews. About 20 million Russians, Ukrainians, other citizens of the Soviet Union were murdered, many more than the number of Jews, of course, without a sign of resistance. In other words, he goes on to say, did anyone in the Soviet Union ever ask why 20 million went like sheep to the slaughter? Did anyone ask why two and a half million Soviet prisoners of war were murdered by the Nazis without any resistance whatsoever? Was, was this asked about the three million Poles who were murdered or the many thousands of other nationalities who opposed the Nazi regime? I have not found any historical book, lecture, or document in which a non-Jew asks whether the other people who died in the Second World War went like sheep to slaughter. The question is uniquely Jewish. It's an expression of self-hate, of a demand from ourselves to be superhuman, heroic, and completely supernatural. The fact that this question is asked at all regarding the Jews, and that it is asked passionately, and sometimes with hostility, demands a response. Apparently, the answer is found in the uniqueness of our particularly self-destructive and self-critical attitude towards ourselves as Jews, although we are forgiving towards others. So the whole thing was based on a lie. It was based on a lie. Number one, he talked about the double standard, but it was based on a lie, based on a lie for the simple fact that the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was not a unique event. There was an uprising in Krakow. There's an uprising in Auschwitz-Birkenau. There's an uprising in Treblinka. There's an uprising in Sobibor. Jews did not go like sheep to slaughter. They did not go like sheep to slaughter. What people also need to understand is the context of what was going on. People who didn't try to escape knew that if they did, those left behind would be murdered because they had escaped. Because If they escaped, they knew they'd be abandoning. Their, you know how many stories we have of parents who insisted on going to the gas chamber because till the last minute they were going to be a parent. They didn't want to leave the hand of their child because they knew their job in this world was to be a parent to the last breath of their child. And they chose to go in that direction. Or they knew that their job in life was to be a child and to take care of a parent till the last minute. Okay, people don't understand what was going on there. So anyway, there's this terrible ignorance that leads to a misunderstanding of what the survivors had endured, a misunderstanding of what the dead had endured. And there was this idea that Jews had gone like sheep to slaughter when they hadn't gone like sheep to slaughter. In fact, they went to they went with great resistance, great courage, and great dignity. And also that resistance took many forms, many forms. I mean, you know, the whole thing was a lie. So, yeah, so in Israel, secular Zionists believe that the purpose of creating a state of Israel was not just to create a new political situation for Jews, but to create a new Jew. And that the Jew of diaspora was the Jew who was weak, obsequious, didn't stand up for himself or herself. And the purpose of the state of Israel is to create a new Jew. And therefore the Jews they wanted to identify with were the Jews they thought who had fought, meaning the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, uniquely in the narrative. 
of the Holocaust that they had fought. <coughs> and, and what do they do? They go ahead and they make the Warsaw Yom HaShoah connected to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And they actually, don't actually call, calling it Yom HaShoah. They don't even call it that. They call it Yom HaShoah alone. They call it Yom HaShoah because they wanted to identify with Anna Levitz, Zuckerman, and Lubetkin, the heroes of the Warsaw Ghetto, instead of with the six million sheep, right? And they were wrong. And they were dead wrong. And I have to tell you that, thankfully, thankfully, that perception is no longer out there. You don't hear that charge anymore. Yeah. And the reason you don't hear it begins in the early 60s. With the Eichmann with, trial. With the Eichmann trial. When for the first time, the survivors had a voice. And for hours every day, right? I mean, I've heard this story from many, you know, American kids who say the first time they got a TV was to watch the Eichmann trial yeah. in America, right? And Israelis were transfixed in the radio. And then the whole narrative shifts because the first time survivors were allowed to speak. Because until that point, what they, I know what one Montreal survivor said to me when I started telling somebody in Montreal what had happened to us in the war, I was stopped and I was told, you know, you didn't have it, you, you know, your story is not that special. We suffered here as well. There was rations on nylon or something. <laughs> and so there was complete ignorance, complete ignorance. And that, it's, that turns over in the, in the early 60s. But there were a good 15 years where Holocaust survivors were made to feel two things. Number one, no one was interested in their story. And number two, that they were condemned almost for being a, a child of the generation that went like sheep to slaughter. That all changes. The right, but, but, but we lost a lot, not, not only just in terms of the hurt that they suffered, but also being able to mine the fresh memories of what had occurred. Uh, you know, the, people like Bauer and others who spurred by the Eichmann trial says, oh, we need to uh, right. re, we need to refashion our, 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 our narrative of the Holocaust lost a lot because. hundred percent. Right. And also there were books written that were ignored and that are sometimes. Sure. The same. Right, the, day. I, I have many of them. You know, no. behind I mean, there's me. a wonderful diary written by Mary Berg, for instance, that was published. Uh, early on in that and century. the Sifre Zikaron that were put together right. from various cities, th they they soldiered on, whether it was Buchach or whether it was Listen, I have a book Rich. here. I have a book here by written, I just read it over Yontif, written in Yiddish by Rachmiel Bricks. Thanks God it's been translated. It's an unbelievable book. Unbelievable book. And thank God Yiddish hasn't died. So there's a lot more translation going on now of some of the original books that were written in Yiddish and some of them written in Hebrew, that are now finding a wider audience that were written in times when no one read them. Yes. Yeah, look, I have a, a dusty edition of, of Kaplan's uh, uh, biography of the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and uh, the, first of all, you know, the, those writers who went, who were Meister Nefesh, to give us these day-to-day -day recountings, um, it was, you know, the, the, the detail is incredible. And the, a lot of that, as you say, uh, as I am saying, was ignored for many years, many years. and um, and I and I think that was part of what caused. Even though it's you're correct, there was a new examination, but but I think it was there there already become entrenched, as you say, the lie of sheep to the slaughter, and and and, and therefore you sort of have this, you know, it already become even as you say part of the popular culture where it was too late. In other words, like this, we, we were sort of embarrassed about ourselves, but the universalistic message was the one that was being promoted. And uh, and therefore, this unique Jewish nature of, of 
of what had occurred, it was hard to reestablish that. Um, well, again, it depends where I think. Listen, maybe I have a different experience because Canada was never that deeply transformed by universalism as was America. So maybe it's different here. We had a stronger and, and, more, and more cohesive uh, survivor community. But the, the instinct, the Jewish instinct for universalism, right? As Cynthia Ozick put it once when she said, universalism is the parochialism of the Jew. One of the most brilliant things ever said by an American Jewish writer. Uh, that instinct for universalism, that uh, the, the almost intuitive or instinctive allergic reaction to those Jews who assert you know, Jewish specificity and particularism, you know, and the, 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 the allergy that, that too many Jews have is, uh, is, is, a, is, is a problem that has infected the Holocaust. There's no question. And Holocaust memory has been affected in many places where you have Holocaust museums in Florida or, or Washington, you know, doing stuff that has nothing to do with Jews. Nothing to do with and, and I think part of it was the idea, and I haven't been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Maybe that's a, uh, you know, that's that's a, a tremendous mea culpa on my part, considering how close I am to Washington. But I, I think it, had this universalistic message not been promoted by Wiesenthal and others, they wouldn't have been able to get the funding uh, to create such a magnificent I mean, building, right? I, I mean, think. Listen, I, I, there's no, I, mean, they, they, no, I don't have a, as I said, I'm not rejecting the universalist message. I have no problem with using the Holocaust as a point of reference in our, in the moral imperative to reject all forms of bigotry. What I reject, however, is the imbalance because the Jewish message has to be, has to be there to balance the universalist message. There has to be both. Okay, so tell me, look, we are so many years, let me get back to the question I started with, which you didn't tap dance around it, you more, you know, you lumbered around it, which is, um, <laughs> which is, do we need it? And another look, we've to say that Holocaust literature, since, especially since the Eichmann trial, it's definitely a, a struggle, yes, but it's oversaturated to an incredible degree. Um, you know, we know, and part of it, of course, is due to the Nazis' own meticulous um, record taking, right? They, they were so wonderfully meticulous in, in everything they recounted. When right. we finally went back to their archives, we were able to, to find out. I mean, you know, because they were such bastards in, in figuring out where everybody lived, I know where now, where my, where my aunts and uncles and everybody was, and everybody was written up so perfectly with that, with that Germanic perfectionism. So we have all this information. It's out there and it's in the public domain whether you go to the Yad Vashem website or many of the other uh, European countries' websites where you can, you know, find all this stuff now, it's been digitalized. Do we really need for ourselves this day um, uh, and, and to turn into something so significant? I'm not even talking about the halachic issues of of, of, not, of, of, of being misabel during the Chodesh Nisan and other things like that. Isn't it possible, I guess that's what my point is, isn't it possible to own up to the ultra significance of the Holocaust, but you know what? Do we really need to invest a Yom Hashoah? Uh, it's, it's almost like the what you hear about Mother's Day. You know what I'm saying? We know I, it. Listen, I, I I believe some contradictory things about this. We're seeing the contradictory. I believe in Yom Hashoah. I believe we need a Yom Hashoah. I, now, I, I just want to trace for thirty seconds some of the. The debate that you referenced. Yes, after the war, 
there was a debate about the need for one. And there were, there were Gadol who said, who quoted the Piyot that we all say on Tisha B'Av about the Crusades, that this day would be worthy, meaning the Crusades, these events would be worthy to have their own day in the calendar, but we don't add days to the calendar. Okay, they quote the Piyot. Okay, the fact is, Jews did add days to the calendar, right? You open up any sitter, there's Slichus for Chav Siva, right, for the Chavinitsky pogroms, right? We did add Chav Siva. I mean, it was linked to other events also, but it was it was established then, right? So you have Chav Siva. So I believe that some of the reluctance on the part of Gadol to establish a separate day for Yom HaShoah was not just about the Piyat and Tishabah. It was not just about that. I think it was, some of the reluctance was that if you sanctify the historic moments of the 20th century, you're going to bump up against the Omatsuma. So I believe that their reluctance was, 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 I believe, political, was informed by the, the, the desire to avoid dealing with the Omatsuma. I also believe that maybe some of them were fearful of the theological challenge uh, emanating from, uh, from the mass slaughter of six million. And therefore, they want, and I don't mean to impugn their motives. I think that I understand where they're coming from. Do I believe it should have been Tishabov? Absolutely. They should have declared Tishabov Yom HaShoah. In other words, that would have done wonders for Tishabov, by the way. But also, it would have put the Yom HaShoah not as a rupture in Jewish history, but as part of a content of a continuum of Jewish history, which I think where it belongs. Right, although it is a unique event, its uniqueness is unquestioned. It still is part of the continuum of how the how Christian Europe confronted the Jews. But again, I I, I can live with the Amashawad in Chodesh Nisan. I'm I, I'm troubled by the implication of the linkage to the Warsaw Ghetto and what that implies in terms of what you know of, of, of the of the of the the libel that it was uniquely it was a unique moment of resistance when it wasn't a unique. Moment of resistance, but there's a lot of issues here. But I believe I hear here's what I believe about Yom HaShoah in general. The idea of a Yom HaShoah is that number one, survivors wanted it. And they win. In my mind, they win. Number two, and that's an ethical issue. That's an ethical issue. Okay. And I don't don't deny that it was necessary while they were alive and while they were able to while they were able to get out there and tell their story. And of course, we needed to bend over backwards to do everything we could for them. And I'm I'm, I'm on your side there. I'm saying now and I'm going to, you know, even when it comes to Chavsivan or any of the things that we find in Shulchan Aruch mentioned as Tanesim, that everybody was Misana, you know, they, they it has. And we know everything is compressed a lot quicker today than it was hundreds of years ago. Things fade out. And I, you know, and, and I think to, to sort of put this burden on all of us to say, well, you don't, you, know, you don't recognize Yom HaShoah. We, we should glorify, not glorify, commemorate and give it whatever it needs, whether it's part of Tisha B'av or something else, you know, but now that they are gone, essentially, Right, they are essentially gone. Whether it's now or within the next ten, fifteen years, and do we really do them a disservice by by not by by by, by okay. sort of walking here's, away from here's it? Here's what I will say. I, I believe. I don't believe. I, I believe Yom Hashoah should continue to exist. I believe that memory. In other words, we're never told in the Torah why we remember. We don't say remember Amalek because. We don't say that. We don't say remember Yitzhak Yisrael because. 
I don't believe memory needs a reason. In other words, what I mean by reason, it doesn't need, it's not that I remember so never again, right? No, that's not why. We remember because memory itself is sacred. Memory is an end in itself. And I don't believe that any Jewish identity is complete without a significant knowledge of Jewish history and a significant knowledge, therefore, of the Holocaust. And it's, it's memory simply to shape our collective personality and our identity. And I believe that the proportion of evil, or let me put it differently, that the, um, the loss of six million, the murder of one third of our people, the murder of a million and a half Jews, and the, the complete destruction of, Europe, of Eastern European Jewish civilization, and the complete destruction of that, it warrants a separate day. And I believe that a separate day, if used correctly, and I think mostly it is, to educate Jews, Jews, I'll emphasize that, to educate Jews about the Holocaust is very valuable. Because I don't believe that memory needs to have a secondary effect. It's the effect itself. Memory itself is sacred. And, uh, and that's what I believe in that, uh, in that uh, to understand the story of, uh, of what Jewish life was like before the war. Remember, after the Chorban, what do we do? We do Zechel Migdash and Zechel We do both. We remember the Migdash and we remember the destruction. We have to do both. For European jury, we need to do Zechel Migdash Oh, I, oh, I think that's a corrective that I think has occurred. Yeah, I think I think what the correct and we've we've talked about it on this program, um, the de demythologizing of the world before uh, the war. I think that we grew up in a tukufa where everything was sort of like so sacred, like. Before the war, you know, it was the greatest, you know, Lita and, and Poland, Sadikim were on every single corner. It, the, the, the Kedush and the learning was was way beyond anything anybody could understand, except, of course, the terrible, uh, you know, Haskola Shachevra. This sort of black and white, unrealistic presentation. Well, I, I agree that people did, did put their own spin on history. Yes. But again, anybody who's a student of history and tries to study understands that Hoskola was oh, okay, but here's the point: you become a student when you do, you are not forced to look at you know this you know things in this strict um, monolithic structure like Yom Hashoah and this is the message. I agree with you, and it's already happened that there should be an opening of real study and understanding of the causes and the events. No one is, the, I don't think anybody is going to say that this is something we shouldn't study and put into perspective. A complete picture of what European life was, what was going on there, what were the mistakes that were made by Jewish leaders and not leaving beforehand. All of that can be part of a, one, of a, of a real intelligent curriculum. I think when you, when you, when you sort of like plaster it into a Yom HaShoah, okay, what, what it does is it, 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 it makes you lazy on the buildup. When it's all about, when it's, all about when, it's, when it's about one day, let me give you an example. I, I was part of many Yom HaShoah um, presentations as a teacher. Here's the, when, when it struck me. The first, you know, I, like I said, I lost, you know, basically everyone except an aunt, uh, but everybody else, you know, my grandmother and, and all my who people who would have been my aunts and uncles and first cousins, they all, okay, all died in the, most of them in the Lodge ghetto. But here's the point. 
because they knew that about me, they asked me at the Yom HaShoah um, uh, assembly that we had to light a candle. Right? They called six people from the staff. And since I was you know, a first-generation Holocaust survivor child, so I was called to light. And I walk over there, and what's in my head is like this. This uh, candle that I'm lighting cost 35 cents at Dominic's, in, which was a grocery store in Chicago at the time. And I'm lighting this, and it's supposed to represent one million people. Right. We had six candles and here I was lighting a 35 cent, you know, a piece of, you know, a, a candle in glass. And I'm saying, this is a million people <laughs> like, 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 you know, and, and, you know, when it's, 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 it's obscene, as you were saying before, this is, a, right, this is obscene, right. you know, right, right. Okay. And now the kids could say, hmm. Or All right, listen, listen, I've been at ceremonies you know, it took place on the grounds of Auschwitz and all these things. And it's easy for people like you and me who are bitter and cynical by nature <laughs> uh, and are uh, tend to irreverence and, <laughs> and everything else to disparage. But the fact is, uh, it is a wonderful catalyst for education. It is the right thing to do. And again, it's right to do it. It's right to remember. It's the right thing to read history. It's the right thing to have as complete a picture as is possible of what happened during the war, of what Jewish life was like before the war. This book I just referenced, the first 60 pages of this book. But by the way, I wanted, first of all, I have read Bauer. And I'll tell you one of the things that Bauer... I'm talking about Rachel Briggs. Oh. It's oh. an unbelievable book. Oh. It's 60 pages about Jewish life in the Stephanie, far from Celts. And about his great uncle, who was the the wealthiest man in the, in the shtetl, who supported people, describing the tears. And the, I, I mean, I, I, this is an unbelievable here. This is for for your Yom HaShoah program. I'm going to read you something you're not going to believe. The um, This is about when Mermendel died, where Mermendel Feldman died. This is before the war. Uh, and how a, uh, a Polish woman shows up at the Leviathan at the funeral. And she gets up and tells the story about how when my husband died, I was left a widow with four orphans without a single grudge to my name. All of her assets were depleted by illness. When I went to the magistrate's office for relief, they kept telling me to come back tomorrow. After every each official passed me off to someone else, my children and I were starving. After this kind of treatment, I finally stood my ground at the entrance to the magistrate's office and started crying loudly. Pon Feldman, she used an honorific form happened to be coming out of the office and kindly asked me, why are you crying? I told him everything. And he took out his notebook, asking my name. He wrote something down and signed his name. He tore out a page, handed to me and said, go to the mayor's office and give him this piece of paper. That's what I did. I got money. I got an apartment. He took care of me for the rest of his life. Who's going to look after me now that now that Pond Feldman isn't here anymore? Okay? This is a Catholic woman, and there's three other stories about Catholics and, 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 and my and Mendel Feldman's Leviathan. And then she says, and then he writes, I'm sorry, then he writes in the book, well, what happened during the war? They took Feldman's son-in-law, who was by then the rove of the city. He was the option of Aleb's son. Very interesting story. They took Remorta. They tied him to the back of a horse. And the same people who cried at Feldman's Leviathan were now laughing as his son-in-law was dragged through the streets and murdered. 
The same people who cried at his funeral then took his tombstone and built it into an outhouse. Okay? Now, those are the last two pages of 60 pages of pre-war life. He gives the, tells you what happened during the war to a couple of people he talked about uh, from pre-war life. Okay? How do you not, this, this is what Jews have to know. These are the things that Jews have to know. Two parts of the story. Number one, the extraordinary generosity of Jews to, the, to, to other Jews and to everyone else. And the tragic story, how that generosity doesn't always get us love in return. It often buys resentment in return. And that's a lesson Jews have to know. It's not a lesson that stops us from being generous, but it's a lesson that guides us into how, the steps we have to take to make sure we're safe and secure. Yeah. Well, in, in a just just put a period on this. In a generation that has been nursed on sound bites and memes and retweets, we have a. It's a big job to be able to distill these aspects on a day, especially with the audience that we need to educate. I, I don't deny, uh, you know, Rabbi Pupko, that that we. It's probably worthwhile to keep promoting these uh, specific Jewish events <coughs> for the people in the outside world, despite the, you know, uh, the question is how much we need it and how much, uh, how much, and because and, 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 there's another, there's another thing which I think needs to be said. And, and that, of course, is, you know, not only the, the hurt that the Holocaust survivors had, and, and you get this, of course, from, uh, um, what is it called? Hiding in plain. What, what was that? The great video uh, about the fellow who took his kids uh, to see where they were hiding, where his, where his. Oh, yeah. um, I thought it was called hiding, uh, hiding in something. I forgot what it was called. A, a great little film. But I think that film in many ways uh, indicates the, the, the other miracle, which is the resiliency and the ability to, to reestablish, you know, in, in these places after you know the families have been decimated, the, the the incredible resolve to push forward and the simcha sachayim that yeah, so many people in no the question. Holocaust, you know, because we we you know Ben Gurion was wrong, although there were definitely many uh, Holocaust survivors who who suffered from depression and and and, and were haunted. There was a, I would say, the majority of the ones that survived soldiered through and incredibly built these are beautiful families. You just said is maybe the most, one of the most, maybe the most important thing that we should learn from the Holocaust when we study about the Holocaust. Because the most unique part of the Holocaust story to me is not the evil of the adversary. The most unique part of the Holocaust story is the resilience and the strength of survival. Because that literally has no parallel in human history. You can't, there's nothing it can be compared to. Because everything we know about PTSD and everything else would have made all of those thousands and thousands and thousands of stories of survivors impossible. Yet you and I both know hundreds and hundreds of survivors, persons who built lives, had got married in DP camp, had children in DP camp, came to Israel or America or Canada and built communities and built families, lived to see children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and built beautiful lives. They were deeply scarred, but somehow 
They had the strength of character to continue. I Listen, I had a guy in my show who lost his nine brothers and sisters, his mother and father, his wife and two children who came to show every morning and every night. And I said, Moshe, how do you do this? I didn't understand. I asked him 30 years ago. He said to me, he said, nothing big. He said, after the war, I had no idea what I was supposed to think about anything. But I knew what I was supposed to do. And I knew I had to keep being a Jew. And the, the stories of, of, of financial success, of community success, of Jewish success, that, that, you know, that was the story of, of, of the overall majority of survivors, is a breathtaking story that should instill every Jew with great pride and an old sense of purpose and a greater sense of what they are capable of, which is so, why studying that story is so, vi- is so valuable. Uh, uh, let me just put an ending here. I would say that, that when we talk about man's inhumanity to man uh, as the great message, and, and, and we could also say that, and this gets into Black Lives Matter and other things, despite the victims and the terrible cruelty that was unleashed on so many uh, marginalized communities uh, by the imperial powers that were, we can be a model of how you bounce back. Absolutely. We don't we don't forget, but we but we don't necessarily wallow in a sense of our victimhood. Right. Now we took the reparations when we could get it, but it wasn't just a way to sort of like, hey, we're taking this. What it was was also a way to strengthen themselves to become extremely uh, valuable contributors to family, Judaism, and the greater society. And that's a message that I think a lot of uh, people need to hear. Mm-hmm. And, if, if, and if they could hear that, then Yom HaShoah isn't just about, oh, do we have to hear to see more images of, 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 of decimated skeletal bodies being thrown at the mass graves? I, I think it needs to be expanded. And in that way, we're not talking about, uh, we don't have to say, oh, there was also 5 million who died. But rather, look, learn from us or learn about what's great about the Tselem Elohim. <laughs> what the Tselem Elohim is capable, uh, the, the, you're able to take the most incredible punch to the solar plexus possible and, and being able as a body to bounce back and not take every step with bitterness uh, and, 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 and with revulsion towards the greater community. So I think that that's a... Um, you know, uh, whether, 100%. Whether I mean, that can, go ahead. The, the, the universal message that can be drawn from the Holocaust is not just the absolute moral imperative of rejecting bigotry, but the universal message of, of resilience and hope and perseverance. Well, thanks for restating what I said, but I appreciate I it. You, 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 yeah, yeah, well, you are the rabbi who gets paid. You know? <laughs> I, I, I'm still waiting for, the, you know, for, for a pruta to come in for all these hours here. That's, that's not such a subtle hint. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.